Eric Estep here. One of my favorite parts of being a NASCAR fan is collecting diecasts. It's how I got my start on YouTube, actually. To me, a room is not complete until it features shelves of NASCAR diecast cars. It's as good a time as ever to continue your collection or begin an all-new one by pre-ordering your favorite driver's 2022 next-gen diecast at LionelRacing.com or at any authorized Lionel retailer. Lionel is the official diecast of NASCAR, and don't miss Lionel Racing's NASCAR Authentics diecasts at a Walmart or Target near you. Not only is Lionel the official diecast of NASCAR, but they're also official supporters of the Out of the Groove Podcast Network. So what are you waiting for? Head to LionelRacing.com to order your favorite driver's 2022 diecast. The number 50 has a special place in NASCAR's record book. Even though the number has never seen the inside of Victory Lane at any point throughout NASCAR's 74-year history, it certainly has been used by many, many drivers over the past seven decades. It's been used in 318 races since 1948. Chevrolets have carried it in 153 races, Pontiac 67 races, Dodge 58, Ford 24, Oldsmobile 23, Buick 13, Plymouth 9, Mercury 5, Toyota 3, and Lincoln 1. So who leads the contingent of drivers with the most starts in the number 50? Well, that honor goes to Ricky Craven, driver of the Hendrick Motorsports Chevrolet with 36 starts back in 1998, the year NASCAR celebrated its 50th anniversary. That's when NASCAR compiled their greatest drivers list, and you can imagine it was made up of all of its most iconic stars in the sports history. Fans may not realize many notables ran the number 50 during their careers, such as Bill Rexford in 1951, NASCAR's youngest champion, Fred Lorenzen in 1956, A.J. Foyt and road racer George Fulmer in the mid-70s, and Foyt also ran it in the inaugural Brickyard 400 at Indianapolis in 1994. Longtime racer Herschel McGriff, a starter in the very first Southern 500 in 1950, ran it in 1992. Jeff Bordine ran the number 50 in the early 80s, and Bill Elliott was the last to run it in the number 50 in July of 2012 at Daytona, just to name a very few. Seven-time Cup Series champion Richard Petty enjoyed 200 career victories during his 32-year career. His 50th victory came in the Fireball 300 at Asheville Weaverville Speedway on March 5, 1967. For three-time Cup Series champion David Pearson, the Richmond 500 on April 13, 1969 marked his 50th of 105 career victories. The Spartanburg, South Carolina native ranked second to Petty on the all-time victory list. And who could forget when 1983 Cup Series champion Bobby Allison won the 1988 Daytona 500 over his son, Davey Allison, at the age of 50. Due to a near-fatal accident suffered on June 19, 1988 at Pocono Raceway, Bobby still doesn't remember winning his third career Daytona 500. He also won NASCAR's most prestigious race in 1978 and 1982. Yes, indeed, the number 50 really is a big number in NASCAR history. Welcome back to a lifetime in NASCAR podcast, everyone. I'm Jerry Bunkowski, along with my good buddy, Ben White. And we have a very, very, very special show today because it is episode number 50. That's right. We've hit a milestone. Episode number 50 of a lifetime in NASCAR podcast. And we're going to talk about not only the some of the best shows that we've done and our favorite shows that we've done, but we're also a very interesting um, history about the car number 50 as well. Ben has worked overtime. He actually put in for double overtime on this one because he's got so <laughs> many good facts uh, that we're going to discuss. So, you know, Ben, first of all, uh, it's a, a historic day for us to, you know, episode number 50 of a lifetime in the NASCAR podcast. I, I can't believe that time has flown by so quickly. I mean, I know I joined up, up on episode number 31, but still the time has just flown by. And, you know, uh, 
when you look at all the shows we've done, uh, as well as, you know, when you did it with, with Aaron before that, uh, the first 30 episodes, what, what are some of the episodes that stand out in your mind is, I, I don't know if you want to call them favorites or just the best. I mean, what are some of the best uh, or favorite shows that you can recall that we've done here on the Lifetime and NASCAR podcast? Oh, boy, I tell you what, we've had so much fun doing this. You know, I, I, I guess I kid when I say this. Episode one, of course, we had two apple cans and a string. <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. No, we, we episode one was great because, you know, we talked about doing a Lifetime NASCAR with uh, our, I would say our producer, uh, Josh Mole and, and Craig Baron Selly, uh, we just come up with this idea to do it. And, uh, you know, Josh was the one that came up with the idea uh, and, and the title of the show, we were just talking in conversation and he, I said, well, there's your title for it, uh, a lifetime of NASCAR. And then uh, I, I would say podcast number 12 was a fun one because Bobby Allison is a very close friend of mine and my family. And, of course, he drove the number 12 throughout his career and had a lot of great stories about Bobby. And he he chose the number 12 because that's the month of his birthday, 3, uh, 12-3-37 is his, uh, his, his date of birth. So he ran the number 312 and a lot of modified races growing up uh, as a teenager. And, and anytime he could get the number 12, he ran it throughout his career in the Cup Series. And that was a lot of fun. And Gosh, I don't know, uh, the 17, uh, you know, Daryl Waltrip was, that was his number and a lot of great fun stories that we talked about with Daryl Waltrip. So gosh, there's been so many, but it's hard to believe that we're already up to number 50 as far as uh, episode 50 and just got a lot of great stuff to talk about today. But uh, yeah, and a couple that you and I talked about off air, uh, the number 43, I think was a great one with Richard Petty, number 48. Those two were a couple of fun ones that we've done. But yes, it's been a, a, a great show. We have a lot of fun and having having you with me to do these. And every week we we just I think we get better and better just because we we come up with all these great things. We have these scripts, so to speak, the things that we're gonna talk about. And rarely do we stick to those because we <laughs> we just have so much fun fun talking about other things that come to mind when we do the show. And I think that's what makes it so much fun is is from the heart and and we just come up with all these things that we remember as we're talking about them and it's like oh did hey we remember this and we remember that and and uh it's just a lot of fun because you and i both are not only journalists in the sport but we're also race fans Mm -hmm. and and it's okay to say that because i grew up in the sport uh, from a young age at 11 years old seeing my first one and then here i am 61 years old now uh and so what 50 years being involved in the, in the sport in one way or the other. So seeing a lot of race cars make left-hand turns all these years and made a lot of good friends in the business. And I just love sharing that with, with fans that are listening to our show each week. And, and we do sincerely appreciate those that are listening and, and hopefully we can bring some great information and funny stories and, and, uh, you know, all that to the, to, to, to those that are listening to us each week. I agree with you. And, you know, the thing that I really uh, enjoy the most is, like you said, getting some of that information out that fans, you know, maybe especially longtime fans may not be aware of, you know, certain car numbers and what they did in the course of their racing history or, you know, uh, some of the stories you've uh, regaled us with over the last uh, all these um, weeks uh, and months about, you know, various drivers, you know, people that you've had a good uh, close relationship with, or I've, you know, obviously chimed in with some of the stories I've had as well, too. And I think that, you know, fans really, sure, they enjoy the, the NASCAR of today, but you can't talk about today unless you talk about where we were, where we came from, you know, and, you know, NASCAR has such a colorful history. I mean, it started with, uh, you know, the, the bootleggers and eventually, Mm -hmm. you know, they had the, um, uh, the meeting down in Daytona beach in 1948 to form NASCAR. And then we saw how, you know, we had the races on the beach early on. Then they built Daytona Speedway and International Speedway in 1959 when it opened. We had Talladega opened up in, what was it, 66? 69. 69. 69. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, we just that's the, the that's the color the lifeblood of nascar it's not just what's going on now but it's how we got to where we are today and you know that's why we enjoy doing this show the a lifetime in nascar podcast because it kind of is a microcosm of both our our lives i mean like you said the first nascar race you saw was uh, when you were 11 years old 
I think the first NASCAR race I saw, uh, well, technically it wasn't a NASCAR race per se. It was a stock car race, but it was at, I was at the, uh, I think it was what, six or seven years old at Soldier Field uh, in Chicago. And they had the uh, Tournament of Thrills, um, which was a, a kind of yearly thing that they did for charity. And I still remember that as if it was yesterday. And I'm, I'm 64 now, so that's 57 years ago. And uh, that means I'm an old fart right now. <laughs> <laughs> but, no, man, you just get uh, more, you get more older you get, the better you get. So exactly, you like, exactly. Like a fine wine. So that's right. But, you know, going back to what I was saying earlier about episode number 50. I mean, this really is a milestone because, um, you know, we have been shared a lot of uh, information from Craig Baroncelli, the publisher, Josh Mull, uh, et cetera, uh, about how successful this podcast has become. And mm-hmm. I am so appreciative of that. And, and I'm also very humbled because, you know, uh, it's a great concept and I was very um, humbled to be brought into the project. And I just feel humble, more and more humbled every single week because folks really enjoy. I mean, I've had a lot of whenever we put it out on Twitter that, you know, the new episodes out uh, invariably, I get a lot of good comments from folks, you know, chiming in about, uh, you know, they either they didn't know this fact or they forgot this fact or what have you. And that really means a lot to me that I can uh, you and I both can convey information to them that they either didn't know, have, may have forgotten, you know, that kind of thing. So, um, but I think that, you know, going forward, we just have just started, we just scratched the surface. This is episode 50, but we've got a lot more uh, episodes still to come and we've got a lot of great stories to come. So I guess the, the best place to start off with Ben is episode number 50. Um, you know, we, we um, um, you, you look at where we're at today and this is kind of a unique episode, if you will, because um, episode 50, we always tie each episode in with the car number, uh, you know, be it you know, car number 49, 48, 47, 43, uh, for, you know, what have you. Car 50, though, kind of a unique situation that I don't think we've had in the entire first 49 episodes of a Lifetime in NASCAR podcast. And I'm going to you know, give the floor to you because... You have done a yeoman's job, as you usually are, uh, with information about the number 50, and it. I think it's going to surprise a few folks. So, Ben, I'm turning the, fo- the floor over to you. Tell us about the number 50 and its historical um, significance and, in a sense, its uniqueness in the world of NASCAR, too, as well. Well, uh, that's true, Jerry. You know, you would think that uh, it would be sort of a, an iconic number uh, with number 50, but in all honesty... We've seen this happen before with other numbers that we've discussed in the podcast, but number 50 has never gone to victory lane, which I've really found to be very interesting. It's been the number for so many iconic drivers. If you look at the, the at the list, you know, as I said in the opening, uh, Ricky Craven had the most uh, starts, 36 uh, starts with Hendrick Motorsports in, uh, in 1998, and that was the year that they celebrated the drivers uh the the greatest drivers in nascar history with 50 of those drivers being the 50th year and he drove it for 36 races they actually changed the number from number 25 which is an iconic number for hendrick motorsports they changed it to 50 for that year for ricky craven they drove it for 36 races but he didn't win with it i remember growing up uh watching nascar races and aj Foyt driving the number 50 car for uh, Gilmore Industries, uh, and he did not win in the in that number. Uh, you have to go way, way back to 1956. Fred Lorenzen drove it. Uh, gosh, the list is long of drivers that that have campaigned the number 50, an iconic number uh, in the sport. Jeff Bodine drove it. Uh, Ron Bouchard drove it. The, the long, long list, but no one was able to take the, the number to victory lane and. And ironically, the last driver to drive the number was Chase Elliott's dad, Bill Elliott, the 1988 NASCAR Cup Series champion. Uh, he drove it on July 7th, 2012, and that's the last time the, the number has been on the racetrack. Uh, and he was running it in the 400-mile event down in Daytona. But, uh, you know, it, to me, it's an iconic number. It's uh, a number that we see so much of the time uh around uh in anniversaries and that sort of thing and this is like a milestone number but we just could we've not seen it ever go to victory lane i just think that is so incredible that uh it's not it's not ever been there and who knows someday someone might take number 50 and 
and and make it a winning number. But so far, it's not happened in 74 years of NASCAR history. I just think that's very interesting. I've got to ask you this. And, you know, we've talked about the, this with a few other numbers that have had very few wins. But is the 50, in a sense, jinxed? I mean, because we, I mean, this is the first number I can recall of the, all the ones we've done so far that it has not gone to victory lane. And that's, I mean, with Bill Elliott, like you said, it's been 10 years since somebody drove that number 50 car. The last time was yeah. 2012. Um, it's, it makes me think there's just got to be some kind of um, voodoo or hex or <laughs> jinx or whatever. That, I don't know. And people just don't want to use that number. I mean, I'm sure if somebody wanted it, it would turn things around completely. And everybody would say, oh, I want to do use a 50 or what have you. But it seems like the longer you go with a certain car number, and like you said, the first uh, time it was raced was in back in 49. So, you know, we're talking about uh, almost, well, it is over 60 years, uh, yeah. almost 70 years, actually, uh, closing in on 70 years, uh, that we have not, um, you know, we've not seen that car go to victory lane. It just makes you wonder that the longer that it's been winless, it just maybe gets a reputation among drivers or among team owners that, hey, you know, when we need a new car number, we're just going to skip 50 and go on to something else that might have a little bit more of a, uh, a winning history, if you will. Yeah, I don't know. And, and you know, uh, the first time it was ever campaigned was a, a Georgia driver, very popular around Dawsonville, Georgia, where the Elliots are from, you know, uh, Bill Elliott, Dan, Ernie. Uh, Elliot are from, of course, Chase Elliott uh, from Dawsonville. Actually, a lot of people don't know this, but Chase Elliott was actually born in Gainesville, Georgia, not Dawsonville, but his mother told me that's Cindy Elliott, but uh, which is not far from Dawsonville. But Gober Sosby, who was an early driver in NASCAR competition, very well known in the Dawsonville uh, area, which is up in the Georgia, Georgia mountains there. He drove the car on July 10th, 1949 at the Daytona Beach and Road Course. And what that was, for people who does, don't know, it was part of the track was on A1A Highway there uh, in Daytona. And the other part of the track was on the beach. And so they had to race uh, at a particular time on Sundays to where they had to get the race in, not for weather, not for rain, not for that kind of thing. They had to get the race in before high tide because right. the, the, the water would come in and sometimes they'd have to call races because the water was coming up on the beach and they had to say, you know, the race is over. We can't race because the water's coming in, uh, the tide's coming in. And so, but yeah, he raced there on uh, July 10th, 1949 in an Oldsmobile and he finished ninth and, and the, the records for that race were so spotty. We don't know where he started the race because it didn't say, but he did finish ninth that day. So that's the first time number 50 had ever raced and it raced 318 times in NASCAR competition. Uh, as I said in my piece leading into the podcast on a variety of cars, Chevy, Sports, Pontiacs, Dodges, uh, one time on Lincoln, but uh, it's just, you know, for whatever reason, it's not ever been to victory lane. So any other, the old adage is, and I've heard this from various drivers, top prominent drivers say that the lower the number on the car, single number, the more luck you have with it. Hmm. And so drivers have tried their best to get the lowest number possible, but then you go to Richard Petty and he killed, kind of kills that with number 43 being the winningest driver with 200 victories. So uh, but but for the most part, people like the single low numbers. And uh, if you can get one through nine, that's that's the best that you can get. And uh, so 50 is way on up the up the line there. And it's just never one. So somebody's going to come along someday and pick 50 and make a winner out of it. We don't know when, but someday it'll happen. <laughs> well, I, I'm, I'm wondering if what will to be around when that happens. I mean, we, we've, we've had not had any luck up to this point in our lifetime to see the 50 win. But, um, you know, it, it makes me wonder, though, that uh, we I don't know how much the fans really know about the process of how a car number is awarded. I mean, obviously, NASCAR owns, uh, quote unquote, all the numbers and they um, essentially parcel them out to teams that either uh, are brand new and they are looking for a new car number or they are given to back to teams who may have had a history with a, a car number in the past. Like for example, the number five of Hendrick Motorsports, uh, you know, that was not uh, used for several years and they brought it back again. Um, you know, that's the first one that comes to my mind. 
but NASCAR, you know, they have the, um, they control the, um, how the, the, the numbers are parceled out, parsed out, parceled out, however way you want to phrase it. And, you know, we've talked about this a few times in the past as well, too, that it's kind of surprising, especially to me, that, you know, we've gone uh, roughly about 70 years of racing and, you know, we still have the double digits or the single digit numbers. I mean, you would think that there'd be so many other numbers that, you know, even triple digit numbers, and there have been a few, don't get me wrong. There've been a few that have gone triple digits, but for the most part, it's been either one or two digits. And that just, to me, just shows the, um, you know, the importance to NASCAR of keeping uh, kind of a, a continuity, if you will, by either having a single or a double digit number. And, you know, that when, when we talk about that, though, of course, one of the first things people start talking about is, well, why haven't car numbers been retired, like the number 43 or, you know, the number three for Dale Earnhardt. Uh, and I think that's part of the reason which makes NASCAR so unique in the sense that they don't retire the numbers. Yes, they have a Hall of Fame for its greatest drivers, which is great but they just don't believe in retiring numbers. And I think that's why, you know, like you're saying, we, we hopefully will see the 50 go to victory lane. I hope it's in our lifetime, but uh, if I'm a betting man, I'm, I'm going to bet against me right now. I don't know about you. So. <laughs> well, right. Well, I'll tell you what, Jerry, there's been times in, in the past. Well, let me back up. First of all, uh, NASCAR does control the numbers and you can go to them and you could say, okay, I'd like to have this number or that number, but the, at the end of the day, they're going to tell you what number they want you to have because they control the numbers they always have. Now, there have been times when you would have a particular number come down the pike and there's a particular sponsor that would like to have a number put on the car. Here's a couple of examples. The, the Wood Brothers have always, 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 always had number 21 mm -hmm. uh, in the time that they've been in the Cup Series. Now, back in 1983, I want to say, they had a 7-Eleven sponsorship, and they requested that they run number seven uh, on the car when Kyle Petty was driving for them. And NASCAR said, okay, because the sponsor wants it. But the, the Wood Brothers said, now, if we do this, you got to understand that when the sponsorship goes away, we get the 21 back because the 21 is iconic to the Wood Brothers. It's iconic to our uh, our team, our heritage, this is what we want. So they signed a deal, put the 7-Eleven sponsorship on the car, and then they did get the 21 back when the sponsorship went away. There was another time when there was a company called 84 Lumber, I believe, mm -hmm. and the car the car was, uh, I think it was Steve Grissom was the driver, and they did put 84 on the car because it had 84 Lumber. That was a deal that was worked out contingent on we'll come to the car if we can change the car number that kind of thing i think dr pepper had a 23 on there because of 23 ingredients or something in the mm -hmm. in the mix or something like that so you, you do have those types of special situations that come up but for the most part 99.9 percent .9 of the time uh, you can go to nascar and say we want uh, if it's available you, you you'd say i want uh the 15 the 17 the 22 or the 24 whatever and of course, obviously, if those numbers are not available, then no chance. But if they are available, and, and this is what we're moving into now with the podcast, 51, 52, 53, 54, some of those numbers are available. Uh, so we'll be talking about those in the weeks to come. Uh, but at the end of the day, they're going to tell you what number you, you're going to put on your car. Now, here's a good example, too. When G Petty GMS Motorsports... Uh, started their teams this year for 2022. They request, they already had the 43 with Eric Jones. They requested the 42 for Ty Dillon because it was a past petty number. No one presently was using the 42 uh, because uh, Ross Chastain went to the one. And so the 42 is available. They requested it, even though NASCAR had the last uh, say and they were given the 42. So again, at the end of the day, NASCAR controls the numbers, but you can request them. So and that's always been the case. You get them, maybe you're not going to get them, uh, but that's the way it's always worked. As far as retirement goes of the number, to my knowledge, none, none have ever been retired. I've seen things happen in the past two years, three years that I would never thought would happen. Mm -hmm. uh, so I'm not going to say never, 
it, you might at the end, you know, if, at, and with the passing of Richard Petty someday, uh, you might see the 43 retired. Uh, we don't know. Uh, it's hard to say, but uh, to date, they've never retired a number. So things do change. We'll see, see how it goes down the road. I have a question. You mentioned about the 42, and then you mentioned that Ross Chastain moved into the one. Of course, the 42 was driven by Kyle Larson before he went over to Hendrick Motorsports. Um, to me, well, I'm going to ask you this. Could Petty uh, GMS Motorsports have gotten the 42 also partly because Chip Ganassi obviously sold his entire operation at the end of last season, did in, in a sense did that make the 42 the number 42 available as well all of a sudden I, I, yes. I, I don't know yeah it, it did because i don't think uh because that team was sold and now if i'm not telling it incorrectly it basically went to track house because they still they bought the team and i guess the number was theirs but they said we don't want it we don't care it reverted back to nascar mm -hmm. if i'm telling it correctly and uh uh, and they could have, you know, they said they may have gone to them and said, yes, it's okay, uh, for them to have it back. So they went back into the, the, the pool of numbers that were available and then they got it. Right. Okay. Yeah. I was, I was yeah. kind of curious about that because, you know, 42 had become synonymous over the last, what, six, seven, eight, nine years, I guess it was, uh, prior to, uh, Kyle Larson moving over to Hendrick and, um, you know, that kind of, I wondered about what would have happened to that number. You know, uh, obviously, if Chip Ganassi would have stayed around and continued his ownership of a, of a NASCAR Cup team, that you know he probably would have kept the 42. You know, even if it would have been Kyle Larson going to Hendrick, you know, with another number, you know, he just brought another driver in. But you know, I think that it made sense when Trackhouse acquired the assets of uh, Chip Ganassi Racing, the NASCAR assets. It it kind of made sense to you know, do something different, start, you know, fresh, if you will, with a different number. And I, I agree with you on that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think that, that they'll always control the numbers and, 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 you know, back to the number 50 again, if, if someone uh, wants to come in and, and use the number 50, of course, they would request it. And then NASCAR would go, uh, go check the list, check, you no, know, it's not, is or is not available. And uh, if it is available and it's no one has their hands on it or so to speak, then if they requested it, they could get the number 50. Yes, exactly. Well, let's talk about the number 50 and the history a little bit more. I mean, obviously, there never has gone to victory lane, but, um, you know, you came up with a phenomenal list for your uh, uh, segment of the podcast talking about the the number you know the, the 50 greatest drivers in 1998 and you you know I'm going through this list that you sent me and I mean it's just it's it's a microcosm of NASCAR history but you know the fact that uh the 50 um the number 50 in the car number as well as the number 50 of the 50 greatest drivers 50 and uh, you know with our show it's an, an it's a milestone as well the 50th episode as well too um I I wonder though Ben going forward you know, as NASCAR gets closer to, let's say, you know, the hundredth year, you know, back in 2048, 2049, will we ever get to a point where we potentially may see a three car number, uh, much like you said about um, Ricky Craven, right? Driving the 50 uh, and, you know, to go along with the 50th great, 50 greatest drivers in 1998 uh, before he, you know, went back to his previous number. Do you think we'll ever see a three-digit number on a regular basis? I mean, because unless NASCAR does decide to change its course and start retiring some of the most uh, iconic car numbers, um, I think we could just, and, and this is not probably not the right word to use, but we can reuse those numbers, you know, ad infinitum to use a little bit of my old Latin that I remember in high school from a long <laughs> time ago <laughs> that, um, you know, will we ever see a deviation in car numbers? I mean, will we ever see well, three numbers? If we do see it, it'll be a, a repeat in history because there was a time in the fifties that they did actually run three numbers on cars in NASCAR. There was uh, a, a team owner by the name of Carl Kiefer mm -hmm. of uh, German descent, and he drove uh, Chrysler three hundreds. Uh, it was sort of like the Rick Hendrick of the 1950s. He was uh, very wealthy. He came into the sport 
It would bring his Chryslers in the back of the uh, of, of covered pickup, like covered trucks, uh, moving vans. And he had 300, 301, uh, 302, those types of numbers on his car. Solid white cars were red numbers and just blew the field away. I mean, he was, like I say, very wealthy. He had a lot of money in his cars. He stayed a couple of years, won some championships and basically just disappeared. Uh, but Tim Flock, Speedy Thompson, uh, Buck Baker, some of those guys were driving his cars at the time and uh, did quite well for uh, for him as a driver. He very hard to drive for, though. Some, I remember Tim Flock told me before he passed away that uh, he was so hard to drive for, and he ended up having stomach ulcers uh, wow. because of just the pressure that was put upon him. But those cars did carry three numbers. And then back in the early 60s, if you were a driver driving, uh, say, at Riverside, California, and you were a Western Winston West driver, but, but it really wasn't called Winston West at the time because Winston didn't come into the sport until 1971. But if you were a Western driver in NASCAR and you entered one of the Cup Series races, then called Grand National, uh, the car that she would run had a three-digit number. So say the Wood Brothers, when they had Dan Gurney winning all those Riverside races for them in the sixties, instead of running number 21, he ran number 121 on his cars. Mm -hmm. And so there was a time, uh, and Parnelli Jones also ran for them and the 121 cars, uh, which were Fords in the early sixties and won some races out there in Riverside for them. So, yeah. And there, I mean, nothing would surprise me about what we're doing in NASCAR, in the future, uh, it'd be interesting to see the 100 greatest drivers in NASCAR. I won't be here to see it. I'll be singing hymns in heaven by then, <laughs> but uh, uh, at least I hope I am anyway. <laughs> but I'm sure, pretty sure I will be. But uh, yeah, I mean, it'll be interesting to see, uh, you know, who that 100 greatest drivers will be. Uh, but yeah, there was a time that the, we did run three digits and wouldn't be surprised. A surprise to me if we went back to running three digits again. But the way it's set up right now, you've got the forty cars uh, with the uh, with the charters, and I don't see that happening anytime soon. But you just never know how it's going to work out down the road. I mean, nothing nothing would surprise me anymore about this. It's so many great changes have come. Some I'm still trying to get on board with, but hey, uh, give me a little more time and I'll get there. That's right. You know, <laughs> looking at the, the stats that you sent me, and this one really stuck out, st stood out to me. You know, uh, obviously, the number 50 has never won a cup race, but it's been in 318 races. And this is what really I was blown away when I saw this stat that you sent me, Ben. 318 races across 10, that's right, count them 10 different manufacturers. I was just, I mean, you know, typically I'll think of, you know, four, maybe five, 10 different manufacturers. You have Chevrolets, Pontiacs, Dodge, Ford, Oldsmobile, Buick, Plymouth, Mercury, Toyota, and even Lincoln. One time in a, in a yeah. Lincoln, it raced number 50 as well, too. This, what does that say to you that even though the 50, the number 50 has not had, you know, a win or six, you know, has had success at winning, the fact that it was across so many different um, manufacturer platforms, that says something to me. What does that say to you? Yeah, um, well, uh, it says to me that a lot of people had a lot of faith in that number uh, in, or it was just readily available, maybe. <laughs> I, don't know, but, I mean, uh, yeah, it, it kind of blew me away too that that number had been used so many times by so many manufacturers and so many drivers uh, I guess I think if I'm not mistaken, I think Chevrolet led the list on that. Yep. But, uh, yeah, it's just, um, it's an iconic number. And I think I, 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 that's what sort of blew me away that it's been used so many times by so many iconic drivers, but yet nobody has ever been, been able to find the keys to victory lane with it. It's just, uh, and I, I think I do remember this firsthand, and I don't know why it stands out to me so much, but I remember seeing AJ Foyt run the number at Daytona back mm -hmm. in the early seventies. And I don't know why I remember he had a gold number 50 Pearl later sponsored Chevrolet. It was a 74 Chevrolet Chevelle. 
And I just thought that is the coolest looking race car because it seems to me like it was red in the, on the inside. Uh, and it was, it was gold on the outside with white numbers and it had the red perlators on the back, but it was just a beautiful race car. And I don't know why that one stands out to me uh, after seeing, seeing that statistic, so many had run number 50, but being AJ Foyt and being, uh, you know, he always ran good at, at, at the Daytona. I remember he won the Daytona 500 for the Wood brothers in 1972 before David Pearson got in the car. Uh, a month later at Darlington uh, in the 21 car. But I don't know, that car was just such a beautiful car. And it was very reminiscent of uh, what, 19, let's see, uh, uh, maybe 10, uh, 10 years later, right at, of uh, f- uh, 14 or so years later with Bobby Allison running the Miller uh, Buick uh, right. number 12 car. Right. But it was just a beautiful race car. And, but every time he went to Daytona, he ran strong. But I just remember seeing that number 50 Perlator car. And I thought, man, that's a beautiful race car. And it's A.J. Foyt. And anytime you put A.J. anywhere on any racetrack, you knew he was going to run strong or break. I mean, he was one of those types of drivers. And, uh, yeah, it's just, I don't know, it's just a, such an iconic number. We talked so much about it during this uh, podcast. But. Yeah, it's just so interesting to me that no one out of all those drivers could could take it to victory lane. It's just amazing. Well, you know, you mentioned about Chevrolet uh, having the most starts with the 50. I'm looking at the stats you gave. 318 total races, the number 50 started. And, excuse me, Chevrolet started, uh, it started for Chevrolet, 153 races, Pontiac 67, Dodge 58, Ford 24 races, Oldsmobile 23, and then it dips off. Uh, we go the sixth most, um, uh, uh, most, I guess, popular manufacturer, if you will, that ran the 50 was Buick. They had 13 starts in the 50. Plymouth had nine. Mercury had five. Toyota had three. And Lincoln, like I said a moment ago, it only had one start in the 50. So, you know, it just, it, it shows that people weren't afraid to use that number or like you said, maybe it was just the only one of few numbers that was available at the time, but the fact that it, it, I I would be really hard pressed to see another car number, even a more popular car number, let's say like a, a three or an eight or a 48 or a 24 that would have been crossed or that would have been raced across 10 different manufacturer platforms. That's gotta be a record in and of itself there too. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. And, uh, uh, it's, it's just an iconic, as we talked about before, it's just such an iconic number. And, and you'd think somebody somewhere with all the talent of, of all those guys that we've mentioned could have maybe done something with it, but didn't, but anyway, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's just a number that so many people tried to do something with and didn't, but one of these days, you never know, some young rookies come, come bust it in and, and take it to victory lane, and, and he'll be the first to do it. You know, you mentioned about A.J. Foyt. Um, do you know in that 72 Daytona 500, was that was the 14? Because he was so synonymous with the 14 in his uh, mm-hmm. open wheel cars. Was the 14 just not available that race? I mean, do you know it at all? I'm just kidding. No, actually, uh, actually, 14 was run that year by Cuckoo Marlin, who was Sterling Marlin's oh, dad. Okay. He ran he ran the 14 for many years. Clifton Cuckoo Marlin was uh, uh, Sterling's dad, and the reason he went by Cuckoo is because when he was little, he couldn't say Clifton. <laughs> and so, yeah, and so it could, would come out Cuckoo, and so that's he was a really neat guy, by the way. St- Sterling's dad was, and he just he loved to race. And, uh, you know, there's the old story about how, uh, while we're on this, I'll go ahead and tell it. It was, uh, Sterling, you know, worked for, for his dad turning wrenches for many years as a crew member. And then it was about time for Sterling to start racing on in the cup series. And he had raced in the late models for many years. And the old story goes that they went into the house. He was, he was a single, uh, only child and it, uh, Sterling had to have been, I'm a little off on the numbers here. He's probably 21 or 22 at the time when this happened. So they go in the house. Eula Faye was his mother, Marlon. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the, the table's set, and he's got the biscuits and potatoes and, and beans and the chicken, whatever, on the table in there. They've got both of the two race cars loaded up outside on two different transporters. And they're getting ready to go to Talladega, and they're trying to figure out a way to tell his mother 
how are we going to tell her that you're going to drive at Talladega this weekend? But we don't know how to tell her because she's going to hit the roof. So they go in the house, they're sitting there and they've got food on their plates and there's not a whole lot said. And finally, Sterling looks up at mom and says, pass the potatoes. I'm driving at Talladega. <laughs> <laughs> and she says, you're a what? He said, that's why I said, mom, pass the potatoes. I'm driving at Talladega. And they jump up. He and, he and Cuckoo jump up out of their seats. And they, he said, we're stuffing chicken in one pocket and biscuits in the other pocket. And they said, we're running out the door. And Cuckoo says, you get in that truck and I'll get in this one. And they're, they're taking off down the driveway. And here she comes behind them, basically, with a broom. You know, going to hit them both. And it's like, you can't drive at Talladega. You didn't ask me for permission. And they said, we don't need permission. We're, we're leaving now. You know, one of those deals. And that's really the way he told her that he was going to have a Cup Series career. But uh, they had already had it planned. They had the cars loaded and strapped down. And he said, I don't know how you're going to tell her. How are you going to tell her? I don't know how to tell her. <laughs> so that's how he said, that is a true story. They were stuffing chicken in their pockets and biscuits in the other pockets. And they needed something to eat on the way. It's the well, you're not going to take the food with you. You're going to stuff it in your pockets. <laughs> and he went on to have a successful career and won Daytona 500 twice. But Cuckoo, though, ran the 14 for many years, and he only won one race during his career. It was a qualifying race, one actually a, a 125 race, now they're 150s mm -hmm. at Daytona. But he won a qualifying race in 72, and that's the only time he won. But he was such a neat guy to talk to, and he, he drove a gold and red number 14, very similar to the car that Bobby Allison drove with Coca-Cola sponsorship with, you know, the – the golden red Chevrolets that Bobby used to run, but uh, uh, the the chicken and biscuit story really is a true story. So, well, I just want you to know, buddy, you've now got my stomach growling. I'm hungry. <laughs> I'm gonna go. I mean, when we're done, I think I'm gonna go to like maybe Popeyes or Kentucky Fried. Yeah. I gotta get myself some chicken now. I tell you. Well, and, and by the way, you got to try the sandwich at Popeyes. It's really good. I'm just saying. I, you know, I have tried it and. I don't know. I love Popeye's chicken, you know, the, especially like I'm, I'm always been a leg guy. I just love chicken legs, but for some reason, the sandwich just, just didn't do it for me. Mm -hmm. Well, there you go. I'm just saying not trying to commercialize <laughs> this, but no, they, the, um, they Starling Starlin worked as a crew member for his dad for many years and he knew he wanted to drive and he, uh, you know, he did drive on the local Tennessee short tracks for many years. And then finally, uh, he did get a shot to drive in the cup series. And as time went on, he drove for Haas Ellington and he drove for Larry McClure, of course, in the four car. And that was his big break, but he drove for several team owners, Harry, uh, I'm sorry, Billy Hagen mm -hmm. and uh, had, had a great career. And I, from what I understand, he's still driving some races on some, uh, on, on some short tracks around Tennessee. Sadly though, uh, Sterling has, has uh, been battling Parkinson's. Right over the past few years and uh, we, our hearts and thoughts and prayers are with Sterling, but uh, yeah, he's, he still loves to race and he still wants to be a part of it for sure. I, I've got to ask you, you know, we've heard this and I can't think of any names that come to my mind, but I know that I've heard this over the years when a driver makes his NASCAR cup debut or, you know, back in the day when it was grand national, et cetera, why would they make their debut at a place like a Talladega, like you said about Sterling Marlin, why wouldn't they go to a, a more, um, for lack of a better word, an easier track or a less challenging track? Why, why does it seem that for a lot of drivers, when they make their cup debuts, they go to the biggest, baddest, meanest tracks there are, either Talladega or, mm -hmm. or Daytona? Well, I think in that particular era, that might have been the best place to go we're talking, uh, I'm trying to think the year that could have been possibly mid seventies. Mm -hmm. And so in that era, you know, you could drive a car, a Chevrolet in their case. And even if he was seven, eight, nine laps down at the end, maybe 10 laps down at that time, he could have still been a top 10 finish. And there was plenty of room, uh, that you didn't have the, the really big packs of cars that you have now where you have a 20 or 25 car pack, not really in those days. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, it might've been a little more challenging on a short track. And in my opinion, uh, it, it might've been just a good place to start. Uh, there was plenty of room if you got in trouble to pull out of, and I don't know, it was, or that just might've been something that he just, he really desired to start at a place like a Daytona or Talladega. And, 
and of course, as it is today, I mean, you had to be uh, tested by NASCAR to make mm-hmm. sure that you were up to the challenge of driving at Talladega. But you have to keep in mind in those days that, you know, in the top 10, you might have, uh, say, a David Pearson would win, Richard Petty maybe second, Kelly Arbor maybe third. And then you might have somebody in fourth that was maybe two laps down and fifth might be four laps down mm-hmm. and sixth, you know, that kind of thing. So uh, Sterling could still get a top 10 or 15 place finish and he might be, gosh, you know, seven, eight laps down or 10 laps down, but still have a decent finish. And maybe it's just good experience for him to be out there uh, in a good place to have a backup car to, to his dad. I don't know, but yeah, it wouldn't be, it was great racing. Don't get me wrong. It wouldn't have been like it is today. It wouldn't have been, you know, packs and packs of cars that what we would see today, it would be, I won't say easier, but it would have been different. Right. Yeah. Right. Well, you know, the one thing, since we're talking about him, uh, Sterling Marlin, you know, he, he was a great driver, obviously one Daytona, but I think there's, at least to me, this is my opinion only. And I wanted to get your take on this too, about Sterling. Um, you know, he came so close to winning that championship. What was it? 2000 and, Three, I think it was, if I remember mm-hmm. correctly, 2002, something yeah. like that. I believe um, it was. was. Yeah, he was racing for Chip Ganassi, and he was leading the points almost the entire season. And then he had the real bad wreck. What was it, in uh, Kansas, I think it was? I, I think it was Kansas, yeah. Yeah, and unfortunately, he wound up finishing, I think it was like sixth in the season. But, I mean, I think there was like, at that point, I think there were three or four races left. And I mean, he was the odds on favorite to win it. And then, you know, because he had the wreck and I think he actually wound up missing, I think at least a couple of races that were left or I mean, he might've rest, missed the rest of the season for my, I, my memory's a little vague on that, but it, it always, it's, it's bothered me because I was a Sterling Marlin fan. I mean, I always was. And, you know, to see him come so close, I, I've got to figure that, you know, and I'm not putting words in Sterling's mouth by any stretch, but, you know, when he's sitting there looking at his career, if he sees maybe some old videotapes or that kind of thing, you almost have to wonder and feel for the guy that, God, I came so close and the one best chance I had and didn't do it. I mean, mm-hmm. I just feel so bad for the guy. Yeah, I know. And, and you know, you couldn't ask for somebody to have more fun with in the garage area. Yep. I mean, he, matter of fact, he and I have, uh, a little bit of a same interest in the respect that we would talk civil war stuff. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. there was a book on tape or not on tape, actually on CD that I I gave to him. uh, Well, it's been many years ago now, but he was so into the civil war. He would collect civil war uh, uh, relics and he would go to places in Tennessee and and study the civil war. and, And has, he has a lot of, at least he had, I don't know if he does now, but a lot of, Civil War relics, and I found this book that I was just so fascinated by, and I would put it in the CD player uh, in my truck, and I would listen to it from race to race, and the time would go by so fast. I said, Sterling, you got to listen to this. This is so good, and so I gave it to him as a gift, and you know, just one of those guys that he could drive 200 miles an hour, but he would sit around the campfire with you and just yeah. talk about normal stuff, and if you didn't, again, one of those same old guys that we talk about. If you didn't know who he was, he would treat you like gold. And I mean, he wouldn't act like a, like a superstar race car driver. He's just somebody come over for, for a beer or come over and talk civil war or come over just to be your friend, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, we sort of had that in mind. If I find a good book, I I really enjoyed, Hey, I've read this book or I've listened to this CD on this book on CD, whatever. And so, yeah, just a very down to earth sort of guy, very country, country boy type person and i i know i'm like you as you wanted so bad to just see him finally he was so close mm-hmm. that year and then we that's i think when we saw jamie mcmurray come sit down in the car he was running xfinity for chip ganassi and and for felix sabatis at the time and when sterling got hurt he uh jamie sat down in the car at charlotte the, the october race at charlotte and he ends up winning the thing. It's yep. like, who is this guy? Yep. Remember that? He was yes. like, who is yep. who is this Jamie McMurray kid? I'd never heard of him. Yep. And it's in ends up winning the race. And of course, that put Jamie's career uh, in high gear. 
But yeah, it just felt so bad for Sterling because he was so close. But no matter what, if he was on top, he was on bottom. But you know, the the stories about I don't know how we got off on Sterling here, but the, you know, <laughs> he's just, a good reason to get off on something. He, he, he is, he is. But you know, the stories about winning the five hundred uh, in ninety. 94 and then comes back in 95 you know wore the same underwear went to the same <laughs> yep. donut shop go, went talked to the same gate guard yep parked in the same spot stayed in the same hotel room all that stuff then he wins the race a second time you know that kind of guy you know just, just funny stuff and uh anyway just just a really really neat guy and i just wish him the very very best always exactly i i talked to sterling um uh, i'm gonna guess maybe Oh, it must have been three, maybe four years ago. And I was doing one of the where are they now kind of stories. And mm. uh, that was right around the time that he was actually getting back into racing uh, short track in Nashville, uh, you know, his, his home track, the fairgrounds. And um, yes, he was starting to feel some of the um, impact of the Parkinson's, but to his credit and, you know, if, God forbid, if I ever have, uh, you know, uh, a malady like that, I want to be remembered for what I used to be like. And I also want to be remembered of what I could still do, even mm. though I was fighting, you know, one of the biggest challenges of my life. I mean, he, you know, he, um, he did say something to me it was kind of funny. And I, I don't know why I, I will always remember this. It was in this same conversation we were talking and you know, Sterling has such a heavy, heavy Southern drawl that, you know, a Yankee like me can't always understand what he's saying. I mean, I'm going to admit it. Okay. So mm -hmm. I asked him to, to repeat what he had said, and I, I don't remember what the question was. And he came out of nowhere and he said something to the effect that um, he mentioned Mel Tillis's name of all things. I mean, this is what, three, four years ago, like I said, and Mel Tillis, to you know, people that don't know, a very well-known country singer, um, you know, big entertainer. He also had a um, a, um, uh, a stuttering issue, and, mm -hmm. and yeah, uh, I did very much so. Right, and Sterling uh, kind of uh, he made a quip to me, and he in because uh, I had asked him to repeat himself. He says, "What do you think I am, Mel Tillis? I'm have to stutter. I mean, did I stutter? You know." And but he he was saying that in such a humorous tone. I. I wish I still had that tape because it was hysterical how he said it. And I started laughing. I probably must have laughed for 30 seconds. I couldn't stop. And that showed me that, yes, you know, the, all the seriousness of the disease that he had been diagnosed with, he, you know, it was, I, I believe that was his actual first race back in the car in probably a couple of years, I think it was, you know, after he had the original diagnosis, but, you know, that he still had, you know, he was fighting such a serious disease, but he had such a humorous tone about it. You know, he says, what do you think I am? You know, am I stuttering like Mel Tillis? And, you know, it's just, it, 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 I will never, ever forget that. I mean, those are the kind of stories that you and I just both love to tell and hear because, you know, the NASCAR of back in the day is so much different than it is today. Like you were saying about, you know, you could, you know, go have a beer with Sterling, sit around the campfire, or, you know, you give him the, the CD with the, you know, the Civil War uh, stories and that kind of thing. You just yep. don't get that these days. I mean, no. I'll, I'll, I'll tell you an interesting little story, a little sidelight here. We were in Las Vegas for the uh, cup race. And I want to say it was 2000 and I think it was 2006 or 2007. And um, they had a media dinner uh, at one, of, I think it was Red Rocks, the, the Red Rocks Hotel, which, you know, had, had been recently open. It was really a phenomenal place. And you know, I've been in this game for such a long time. I mean, I've been sports, I've been a sports writer for over 40 years and I normally don't get surprised or taken aback by certain, you know, individuals, but sometimes I do. And the one thing, and I mean this in the best of respects, I remember was myself, it was uh, Monty Dutton, uh, a longtime NASCAR writer that you obviously, uh, you and I both well know well, yes. and mm -hmm. Jeff Gordon, Jeff Gordon. And Jeff Gordon, you know, I mean, I had been covering him for years, but to that day or that evening, never had seen Jeff, so to speak, let, you know, uh, let down his hair. I mean, he was so cool to talk about or talk to. 
And we really weren't even talking about NASCAR. We were talking about all kinds of different things. I mean, I know uh, Monty was uh, kind of joking with Jeffy about, you know, uh, Jeff is, uh, you know, he likes wine. You know, he's a wine connoisseur. I think, in fact, I think he actually still has the, he sells uh, his own brand, brand of wine. Mm-hmm. He does, yeah. And, and it just, it took me, it, it, it kind of set me back, but in a good way that, you know, I miss those days of where you could just hang out with guys and just, you know, forget about, racing or baseball or football or whatever the sport that they were involved in and just you know be a bunch of guys just you know shooting the bull i mean i miss mm-hmm. those days because i think you know the day the drivers of today they're so uh focused on you know they obviously have to you know present a good uh uh picture of themselves uh the best picture they can you know for their sponsors you know to keep the sponsors happy and that kind of thing but we've lost some of the the, you know, what these guys were made of, what, you know, how they grew up, how they, you know, uh, got to where they're at. I, I just, I miss that. I mean, I, that's when you said that about Sterling, that was immediately brought that Jeff Gordon yeah, story to me. Yeah. Mind. And, you know, Sterling and, and that group of guys, Dale Earnhardt and yep. Terry Labonte and, and those guys of the eighties and early nineties, they would, I'm seriously, when I say this, they would come to, to me and other writers and say, Hey, I got a great story I did to tell you about. Something just y'all need to write this or that. I got this idea or that idea. You don't get that anymore. But uh, you know, something I wanted to share with you. We were we've been talking about the number fifty, and this is an, a story that that came to mind that I wanted to share with with you and our listeners. You know, there was a time we talked about the Wood Brothers number twenty one, but there was a time they seriously thought about using the number fifty on their race cars. And in nineteen fifty, Glenn Wood, the team owner, was going to, and he was a driver by the way. Uh, for years and actually ran in, in what was then the Grand National Series is now the Cup Series, but he was going to run. This is in 1950. He was going to Morris Speedway near Martinsville, and they were running a modified race and uh, got in the race and they they crashed. And they were driving the car back to Stewart, Virginia. And this is in the days before they had transporters. And they were they'd hook the car back to the uh, to the back of a pickup and they just drive the race car on the ground back to the the race shop well the the rear wheel after being wrecked started to wobble and the the frame was bent and then by that happening it basically broke the axle and the axle caught the edge of the uh the neck of the the gas tank and it broke that and gas poured out and of course the friction underneath well basically it started a fire and so the fire got underneath the car and the car they had to pull off, but they actually couldn't pull off. It was the the car caught fire right in the middle of the highway. And so the car number 50, this Ford that they had caught fire and burned completely to the ground (laughs) right in the middle of the highway. Okay. So they all they could do is stand there and watch it burn. So Glenn looked over at his brother Leonard and says, well, this idea about having car number 50 on our car is probably not such a hot idea. (laughs) See, that proves my idea about a jinx. There you go. (laughs) Yeah. So maybe so. So uh, as it turned out though, they did take the car back to their, their house. This is before they had a shop. This is back when they had the big Oak tree in the front yard where they pulled all the motors and stuff out, which is still there at their, grandmother's house if i'm not mistaken it's still there mm-hmm. and they're they were old i mean glenn has already passed away i think he passed away at the age of 90 leonard is still alive so it's a family patriarch house that's that same oak tree is still there where the motors were pulled out they did take the car back and they did repair the car which was burnt to the ground i don't know how they repaired it they did go back and they ran at a place called dan river speedway and they finished third the next week with that same car so there you go that's determination but they they gave up on running number 50 because they didn't think that was going to be a very good number to run because it was, <laughs> you're right it's probably jinxed so maybe that's where it all started and the number 50 could never get to victory lane i don't know but that's just a little side story just to share that's what i love about these these episodes we always have these little side stories to tell about Speaking of episodes, we're actually coming towards the checkered flag on, on episode 50, the milestone episode 50 for us. We got two of our regular segments we haven't uh, talked about. So let's talk about the driver of the week and also the racetrack of the week. Ben? Yeah, we sure can. And you know what I was doing, as I do each week, I did some research. The driver of the week this week is uh, Ralph Earnhardt. And this is something I didn't 
really know, or maybe I knew it and I forgot it, but this is something I thought was very interesting. Ralph Earnhardt actually started 56 Cup Series races in his career, and I, I didn't know that, to be honest with you. It was from 1956 to 1966, even though he didn't run the Cup Series in 1959 and 1960, so over eight seasons, mm -hmm. he ran uh, 56 Cup Series races. He was also a sportsman champion, I believe, in 1956. But, uh, uh, and Dale Earnhardt told me himself, you know, there was there were times when uh, in the movie, uh, a couple of movies have been made, said, you know, Dale found him in the shop uh, when he passed away. And, and that's not true at all. Uh, Dale was actually uh, working in a boiler plant in Wilmington, North Carolina. And when he learned that his dad, had, unfortunately, had passed away, and the Highway Patrol, North Carolina Highway Patrol, uh, they, his mother had called, said this is his tag number, and they actually found Dale in the, on the highway and pulled him over and told him that his father had passed away. Uh, and that Dale told me that himself. The, the, the fact he did not find him. Actually, what happened was he was changing the alternator on a woman's car there at the house in Kannapolis. He had come back in the house and to wash his hands in the kitchen and he sat down at the kitchen table and that's when he sadly had suffered a heart attack. But all this about Hemdale finding him was not true. Uh, but uh, the, Ralph Earnhardt was a great racer and very determined, uh, you know, to make it as a racer. He actually started uh, driving uh, full-time uh, in the early 60s and uh, died uh, in September of 1973. Uh, sadly, that's when we lost him. And then as far as the track of the week, we were going to talk about Greenville Pickens Speedway uh, that uh, actually closed in 1971. Uh, but uh, a lot of great racers actually on that 50 greatest drivers list. One at that racetrack is a little small half-mile track uh, there at uh, in South Carolina and David Pearson won a lot of races there. Richard Petty won a lot there. Just a who's who of, like I said, on that, uh, 50 greatest NASCAR drivers. A lot of those guys won at that rural racetrack and started the careers of many of those guys, but, uh, it, it closed in the early seventies. And Ralph Earnhardt was also a track champion. According to your notes here too, you know, Ralph was champion at Columbia Speedway in, in yep. South Carolina and Greenville Pickens Speedway as well. He sure was. Yeah. Great, great racer and great, great family man too. He was just a, a tremendous person. I wish I had had the honor to meet him. I did not. And, uh, and, you know, Dale really wanted to have his dad at his side during his career that didn't work out. But of course we wouldn't know that, uh, Dale, Earnhardt went on to become a seven-time NASCAR Cup Series champion and just uh, won 76 races on his own. But, uh, yeah, Ralph Earnhardt was was quite a racer and quite a gentleman, from what I understand. Good good man. Well, you're a good gentleman and a good man as well, too. And I think that's Thank where you. we're going to wrap up this episode in episode number 50, the milestone episode, as we're calling it, of a Lifetime in NASCAR podcast. Ben, as always, a great show and uh, looking forward to doing another 50, maybe another 500. If we've got willing, we're going to be around yeah. for to do that. But I love uh, it. Uh, really enjoyed today. And, you know, it, it just goes to show you that, you know, some people say that NASCAR, you know, is, is too... Um, focused on numbers i disagree i think that the more numbers i want to see you know that i mean who would have known that number 50 car number 50 never won a cup race i didn't know that until today i mean mm. that's why i like to you know when we talk about statistics car numbers and that kind of thing it just kind of whets my appetite even more to learn about okay what's the next car that maybe never had won a race or maybe only may have won one race in its career i mean you know when the number 50 makes 300 and some starts and still never reached victory lane that just that just i, I get i get excited about that kind of stuff because i mean it, it it tells us something i didn't know and it just shows that yes you can teach an old dog new tricks that's <laughs> so. yeah well we, we are we're learning as we talk about it and, and as we said at the beginning of the show we have a script we sort of follow we don't follow Follow it all the time and that's the fun part about this show we just kind of get off track and talk about all kinds of great stuff and that's what we enjoy doing is bring information to to those who listen we really appreciate everyone listening to our show we have a lot of fun here amen amen ben really appreciate it we will talk with you next week and everyone hope you have a great week and uh get ready we're getting ready for the day 2500 on uh, february 20th to start the new season i'm pumped up about that 
but uh, we got a lot more of history coming up over the next several weeks, uh, several months, several years, if if God willing, like I said, on a Lifetime in NASCAR podcast. So for Ben White, my buddy there uh, down in uh, in, uh, North Carolina, I'm Jerry Bunkowski up in very still chilly Chicago. And we'll take the deal. We'll hope you have a good week, everyone. And we'll talk to you next week right here on the Lifetime in NASCAR podcast. Eric Estep here. This episode is brought to you by Forney Industries. Get it done with green. Forney offers a full line of welding and plasma cutting machines, metalworking accessories, and more. For do-it-yourselfers all the way to professional metalworkers, Forney has everything you need for your next project. Shop Forney's top-of-the-line products at forneyind.com. That's Forney, F-O-R-N-E-Y, ind, I-N-D.com, or at an authorized Forney dealer near you.